Welcome to Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking, the podcast. Each episode, we'll take you on a deep dive into the connections between global finance and modern slavery and human trafficking. We'll look at all the different ways that the financial sector can harness its leverage to end modern slavery, forced labor, and human trafficking, and bring you a roundup of all the latest developments from ESG regulation to revealing research. In this episode, we consider the financial logic of slavery. We'll learn how debt is used to control trafficking victims. We'll hear why some businesses treat their workers as disposable depreciating assets, more like machines than people. And we'll hear about the implications for financial markets. Let's start at the beginning. What does today's finance have to do with slavery? After all, we all know that slavery was abolished 100 years ago or more, right? Right? Well, it turns out it's not that simple. For starters, what was abolished was only the legal institution of slavery. But it's still in fact going on. So much so that one in every 185 people was enslaved last time the United Nations measured it, back in 2016. To understand this, we turn to an expert from the Rights Lab at the University of Nottingham. Yeah, hi, James. I'm Katerina Schwartz. I work at the Rights Lab at the University of Nottingham, leading the Law and Policy Program. Dr. Schwartz, working with Professor Jean-Alain at Monash University, you recently undertook a comprehensive mapping of legal provisions around the world addressing modern slavery. The results of that mapping are available at antislaverylaw.ac.uk. What did you find? In almost half of the world's countries, there isn't a crime of enslaving another human being. And in about the same number, there isn't a penal prohibition of forced labor. And in even fewer, in very few states, in fact, is there a criminal prohibition against servitude or any of the four institutions and practices similar to slavery. And the reason that this is true, despite the fact that everyone believes that slavery has already been made illegal everywhere in the world is because there's a fundamental difference between abolition and prohibition. And now in the 19th and 20th centuries, what states really thought that they were fighting against was de jure chattel slavery. That is chattel slavery that's enshrined in the law as legal ownership of persons. So as all states went about abolishing the laws that allowed for property rights in persons, they thought they had then effectively abolished slavery. But of course, we know that the definition of slavery in international law is actually more than just de jure slavery. It's both de jure and de facto slavery, that is both slavery in law and slavery in fact, which means that even if you've abolished all the laws allowing property rights in persons, you haven't necessarily prohibited all forms of slavery because you're still allowing the condition of slavery to exist without legal ownership. So really, we need that criminalization. And the slavery conventions and the forced labor convention as well explicitly require states to take that step of criminalizing slavery. So that's really what we were looking for. Can you give me an example, Dr. Schwartz, of slavery that is de facto, but not de jure, as you put it. Yeah, so there are plenty of examples in our world today of these kinds of of conditions going on. And we can think even of 
the most severe example of, for instance, slave markets in Libya, where people are literally being bought and sold as chattel, but because the law of that country doesn't recognize people's right to do so, it's not traditional legal chattel slavery in the way that states understood it when they were going about abolition. But there are also many other shades of slavery beyond that that look slightly less like traditional chattel slavery, but in which people are still treating other people as things and exploiting them as if they were their property. So these are conditions in which people are constrained through either physical violence or the threat of violence. They are exploited, often in very abusive conditions, and importantly, that they don't have any opportunity to leave that condition. From the perspective of that person, this is a permanent condition that they may never leave. So what you're saying then, if I've understood you correctly, is that in roughly half the countries of the world, I may not be able to own another person and you know get a mortgage against them and use them as capital, but I can treat them as though I own them. Is that right? Exactly right. Exactly right. And just as we made you know, trafficking in drugs and the drug trade and selling drugs and, and possessing drugs illegal, we know that people continue to sell and use and profit from the drug trade. And it's very similar. Just because we made legal ownership of persons illegal or, you know, ceased to make it legal didn't mean that we actually stopped it from happening. It just took slightly different forms. If people can't be owned as property then, then what kinds of methods do people use to control other people? Is this just about physical coercion or are there other other ways that they're controlling people? No, it's much more complicated than just physical coercion, although physical coercion or the capacity for physical coercion are often present. We also see things like debts used to control people, social isolation, psychological coercion, where, for instance, you convince someone that if they leave, they'll be deported or caught by the police or that the police are you know, essentially in the enslaver's pocket and they'll just be sent back. And so there are a lot of mechanisms of psychological as well as physical coercion that are used by enslavers to hold that person in the condition of slavery. Kevin Bales, Professor of Contemporary Slavery at the University of Nottingham, expands. I think what's important to understand is that there is no single dominant form or mechanism of enslavement around the world. There are probably at least a hundred different mechanisms and ways that people come into being enslaved. Some of them are lured in with debt, or put it another way, they are lured in with cash advances, they are lured in with notions of protection. They're lured in with offers of good jobs. Other people are literally captured at gunpoint. That certainly happens in conflict zones. Other people are thinking that they're involved in a normal migration toward employment, but find themselves in vulnerability once they arrive at, at what you could call their host country. The point being that the people who come into those situations of extreme vulnerability are easily taken, lured sometimes physically taken into enslavement. This is a situation where the employer of a person holds a debt, often for the recruitment of that person, where they pay for them to come to the workplace, they pay for their food, their travel, perhaps their accommodation. And so then they have a debt that they hold over the person 
is working. And this is a debt, crucially, that that person can essentially never pay off because the value of their work is not properly applied to satisfying the debt. So you get into these situations that are very complicated and sometimes involve both this kind of psychological coercion of debt and honour, but also physical abuse, abuse and violence, where that person is essentially trapped in a cycle of exploitation because they can never repay the debt because the debt keeps stacking up the longer they are employed and they keep working to try and repay that debt. And in some situations, that debt is also passed down family lines. So someone might, for instance, be placed into debt bondage because one of their parents held a debt. And that then becomes a form of hereditary exploitation that's passed down. Professor Bales? Well, we don't call it slavery because of the nature of the of the cash advance or the loan or the financial arrangements. It's what occurs after that facilitating factor has been put into the process. What happens after is the complete control of one person by another, violence being used to maintain that control, and the real point of that control being exploitation, physical, sexual, economic, and so forth. And that's exactly how victims of this kind of exploitation experience their victimization. Here's another part of my conversation with Timmy Anagi. You're 20 years old. Your family owes this large debt as a result of you know, owing it on, on your house and on mother's medical procedures. You take this incredibly brave decision at 20 years old to go overseas and work to be able to repay these debts. You apply to an agency. It helps bring you to Canada. You get to Canada, and the first thing they say is your debt has just doubled. Is that right? They basically said that, yes, this is how much I owe now, and which was a lot more than I thought initially when I left Hungary. This kind of money you can't make with babysitting. A, can you pay me the money back right now that you owe? And I said, if I had that money, I wouldn't be here. They said, okay, no problem. Then you can't go on babysit because you're not going to make that money with babysitting. We need to take you to another place where you make this money in a week or two. And then you're going to make so much more money and you get your family out of debt. And I said, what kind of a job? And that's how the whole thing started. So then they took me to strip joint and the rest is history. But I did not have the intention to do that kind of a work. But then every single day, the debt just wouldn't go away. I would come back with $500, $600 a day. The next thing you know, two weeks later, I made, I don't even know how much, but definitely way surpassed my $3,500 that I owe them. And it was just never enough. Every day they would be like, oh, the gas was $120. We needed to change the light bulb. That was $520. And the list just goes on and on. And you never end up contributing to your actual owing. And it was interesting as I was there for three months, we added up that we made over $40,000 per girl for them after all the costs. When I left, they said that every single day when I escape and if I don't come back, every single day I owe them another, I can't remember how much, I think it was $3,000 per day while I'm gone. So by the time I went back to Hungary and escaped from them, I owed them, I can't even tell you how much and I can't even tell you for what. What Timir is describing is the classic pattern of debt bondage, the use of debt to force her to work against her will. No matter how much she earned her traffickers, 
the finish line of debt repayment just seemed to keep getting further and further away. So she escaped. But her traffickers still wielded her notional debt as a weapon to control her. What they said is, what they sent a message to me, once I escaped through a Hungarian connection, they said, right now, every day, until you come back, we add $3,000 per day to your debt because you are not here. And that's like a punishment for escaping. And I better come back fast because the more I owe, the harder it's going to be for me to pay it back. So how did you know how much debt you had left to pay after them? Did they tell you that every day yeah. or once a week? Every day. Every day. So yeah, every single day they like, no, you still owe us. No, you still owe us. No, you better get back to work. No, you know, it just never ended. And I, towards the end, I was like, I cannot believe that I'm here. I don't have a dime. I have an eight. I can't leave. And I can't even go back home because we have no money. So when I go back home, I'm going to be worse off than when I left. Just now, Timmy, you said that you couldn't leave. Was that because of the crushing debt or something else? It's a combination of everything. So by this time, and it's pretty much every single survival, but nobody really talks about this. The shame is so deep that I left. I haven't talked to my mom or my brother for three months. I became a prostitute. I'm a prostitute. And they make sure that everyone's going to know in Hungary. And I have no money. And I couldn't save my family. And I go back and I haven't called them because I don't know what to say. And even if I could call them, I wouldn't call them because I don't know what to say. What am I going to say? What am I doing here? Why there is no money? I mean, the shame and the guilt and the fact that you think this is all of your fault because why are you in it? You just don't see it. You don't. So those are one one reasons. Another is you have no money. So where are you going to go in Canada? You can't even get in a cab. And then once you get in a cab, where do you go? Like you have nowhere to stay. Where are you going to go? You just don't know anything. You don't speak the language. And they tell you for the amount of time that the cab driver will kill you and everybody's a psychopath and the police will arrest you. And the world is so much scarier outside of the, the trafficking ring than inside. So at this point, you're with people. All the other girls are in the same position. They're also ashamed and feel guilty. They're also broke. So at least people here understand me now. What am I going to do when I go home? Everyone's going to know what happened. Like it's So there's so many reasons why you don't leave. Financial, physical, and you're terrified what happens. That's actually one of the main reasons until it isn't, until you realize that you either leave and they'll kill you or you stay here and you will die while you're still here. Slavery is no longer based on property law. It's organized through contact law and debt and even social norms, not legal norms. It's no longer possible to hold a slave openly on your books as an asset or to use them in some of the other ways we use capital assets as security against loans, for example. As Edward Baptist has showed, Slave-backed mortgages were, in fact, a key source of funding for the growth of the American economy in the 19th century, and they're often rolled up into financial instruments sold to investors in Europe. We don't see that happening anymore. You can't go to a bank as a legitimate business person and ask for a loan offering your slaves as collateral, right? Right? 
In theory, the answer is no. People can no longer be treated as property. But what about if we're not interested only in theory? What if we're also interested in practice? You've probably heard the old chestnut about theory and practice. In theory, there's no difference between theory and practice. In practice, though, well, that's a whole different story. And that's just how it goes here, too. Here's Fiona Reynolds, CEO of the UN-backed Principles for Responsible Investment. Well, it is illegal, of course, but we know that it's unfortunately something that's alive and well with more than 40 million people in some form of modern slavery and human trafficking. And we know that 71% of those people are generally women and girls. And we know that it's a huge business for many people, representing about $150 billion in annual earnings. And when traffickers are basically looking to launder their money, well, they have to do it somehow. And in a vast majority of cases, they do that through the finance sector. So unfortunately, the finance sector is completely linked to modern slavery and human trafficking. So when it comes to pension funds around the world, which are the organisations that I mainly work with, pension funds and investment managers, we're obviously invested in huge numbers of companies and all the big multinational companies, all the banks we are investors in. And large companies, particularly those who have to manufacture goods, obviously outsource their supply chains. And so therefore, inadvertently, because we invest in these companies, we are also connected to these supply chains. And it's often in supply chains where you find the prevalence of modern slavery and human trafficking. Although businesses can't treat workers as collateral, they do come into capital raising. Raising capital is all about projecting future costs and revenues, including labour costs and revenues generated by that labour. Broadly speaking, the greater the gap between a company's labour costs and the revenue that labour will generate, the cheaper it will be for that company to raise capital. Capital markets reward firms that drive down the costs of labour below the expected present value of future earnings, less expenses, from that labour. The signal that gets sent by capital markets is that a business should do whatever it can to make labour as cheap as possible. It's a small step from there to the introduction of force, fraud and coercion into the labour relationship. And that's not the only conclusion you can draw from understanding the relationship between labour costs and capital costs in that way. The other conclusion is that a business should get rid of a source of labour as soon as that source's future earnings dip below the future costs of its maintenance. In other words, businesses should treat workers just like they do machines. They should assume that they're disposable. To learn more, I spoke to the originator of the idea that modern slaves are disposable people. My name is Kevin Bales, and I'm the professor of contemporary slavery and the director of the research of the Rights Lab at the University of Nottingham. It's almost 20 years, I think, since you wrote your seminal book, Disposable People. Can you tell us what the the key idea there was in that book? What did you mean by the term disposable people? Well, you know, the term disposable people came to me as I was doing the research for the book. 
at the time, in the in the late 1990s, people really didn't know much about contemporary forms of slavery and how they were playing out as economic and business enterprises. And as I studied five separate slave-based businesses around the world, one of the things that really struck me was how inexpensive people had become or how low cost they had become in terms of acquiring them into slavery. So not purchasing people as slaves, but just literally what was the acquisition cost of bringing someone into slavery. And the cost was so low that, for example, in the commercial sexual exploitation brothels in rural Thailand that I studied, you know, the, the profit margins were something like 400% because the cost of acquiring a human being, which could then be sold for sex, was so very, very low. And what struck me was that contemporary slavery compared to all his, almost all historical slavery, and I mean the last 5,000 years of global slavery, is that for most of that time, slaves have been expensive capital purchase items. They were of significant cost across time in the past. And you can you can measure this in a number of ways, but it's that's that's a known fact in economic history. Now we have people who are so inexpensive that they are disposable inputs into economic processes. And that's where the disposable came from was I began to realize they were much more like styrofoam cups than heavy equipment. They could literally be purchased cheaply, used once or twice, crumpled up, thrown away, and easily replaced. When you say that the price of a slave has come down as a capital asset, why is that? Why is it cheaper now to purchase, quote unquote, a person than it was in history? Well, I think there are two or three reasons, and all of them have to do with the fact of life in in the 20th and 21st century. One is that in the past, large acquisitions of slaves usually required either significant military operations, that was the Roman model, the Greek model, the the Turk model, and so forth, in which you would literally send an army out to harvest an entire population of people and bring them back to the slave markets. In the transatlantic slave trade, it required both military or at least Confederates working with you, military operations in, say, West Africa, which would then lead to a significant cost in shipping to move these slaves thousands of miles across the Atlantic and so forth into, say, the Caribbean, the American South of Brazil, with a fairly high attrition rate along the route, all of which adds to the ultimate cost of of acquiring them. Now, that was also a world with a much smaller global population and a much hungrier demand for labor. We live in a world with nearly 8 billion people today. We have no shortage of human beings. We have not really a demand for labor. We have, if anything, a glut of labor. The people who are the poorest, most vulnerable, the wrong and inverted commas ethnicities, Whatever are the ones who are easily pushed away and to the side in the economic processes of many states, and they're simply easy to pick up. They're often ignored by legal systems. They're often treated with discrimination. They're often placed in situations where they're easily exploited. So the result is a very low cost, harvested at source very often, and used quickly and then and then dumped. And as a business person, once I acquire a slave, why would I dump them? 
here's a tiny example. In Nepal, I've met with with young boys, I mean, under the age of 13, young boys who had been promised work away from their home villages. The recruiter had said, you can do this work with us. We'll send some money. Here's a little bit of money for your parents right now as an advance on your wages. That was a way of prying them away from their family. Once they were away from their families, they were put to work as basically as donkeys. I mean, they were carrying large stones on their backs up and down the mountains to bring them out to be sold in the cities. Now, these stones were were big, flat paving stones, often weighing more than the boys themselves. And not surprisingly, if you know Nepal and you know the rocky pathways up and down the mountains there, sometimes the children would stumble with those weights. They would fall into a ravine. They would break a leg and so forth. What happened when that happened? The slaveholder would go down and find the boy, take the stone off their back, take the stone back up to the path, but leave the boy in the ravine. Why? Because it cost more to repair the boy with medical care than it would have been to just simply recruit another in the next village. They were truly disposable in that way. They had performed enough of their work, enough had been made from them, This was certainly the case in other types of of slavery as well. Enough had been made from them. It was all right to simply replace them because that process is fairly easy as well. Now, in the countries with really good law enforcement, where it tends to be a little more dangerous to be a criminal, that process is disrupted and harder to accomplish. But in lots of the world, away from the, the eyes of law enforcement, that disposability is very much apparent. In other words... Once it's cheaper to acquire a new slave than to keep maintaining an old one after the future revenue they'll generate is factored in, then it's time to dispose of the old slave. Slaves are depreciating assets. And the depreciation rate depends on the task that the person is being put to, the victim's own characteristics and even social norms. Here's Professor Bales again. We absolutely see that differentiation between age and gender and sometimes ethnicities as well in enslavement and in terms of their disposability. Now, thinking this way assumes, of course, that the disposal costs fall only on the slave, not on the business itself or on the society or economy as a whole. And that, says Bales, is just not true. Slavery is a drag on economies. Slavery generates criminal profits, but not productivity. It removes human capital. It's fundamentally bad for business. It creates competition, which cannot be met in honest and legal ways. It's a drag, which I believe is much greater on the economy than its actual size should demonstrate. The social costs of slavery cannot, it turns out, be fully externalized. And in actual fact, I think that what we're seeing is that when we look at COVID-19, it shows us the interconnectedness of issues. So we can see that if we don't have healthy people and a healthy planet, then we're not going to have a healthy economy. You can't divorce one from the other. They all go together. Says Fiona Reynolds. It's still true that we're seeing millions and millions and millions of people who are left unemployed. Now, if you're in developed countries, that's bad enough, but at least you've got some government support. 
But in developing countries where that government support isn't there and you don't have access to social services or to government payments, then this really, really makes you vulnerable. And so I've got real concerns about this whole issue in terms of COVID-19 and I think we're going to have a far worse problem, sadly. So risks are actually going up for business and for investors then, you're saying? I think they are going up for business and for investors. But sadly, I think they're going up, more importantly, for individuals. And it's something that we all need to be more vigilant about. As we'll explore in future episodes, this has huge implications for how we think about investing and capital market regulation. How do we shift things so that capital markets reward the firms that are doing the right thing instead of punishing them as they now do? So as major shareholders of companies, as investors, we really need to use the leverage that we have to talk to companies about how they deal with supply chain. So what due diligence do they do? How do they follow up and investigate their supply chains and verify what is happening? We need to say to them that we don't want to be involved in modern slavery and human trafficking, and we expect you as the companies to be doing something about this and taking action and reporting back to us about those actions. We'll come back to those questions in a later episode focused on investors. In the next episode of Fast the Podcast, we're going to ask a different question. What happens to the profits made from slavery? Where does the money go? Join us next time to follow the money. In the meantime, visit us at fastinitiative.org, on Twitter, at FinCom Slavery or on LinkedIn's Fast Initiative profile. Send us your feedback and suggestions by email to info at fastinitiative.org. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is a podcast recording by United Nations University Center for Policy Research. The views expressed are those of the speakers.